When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. First of all, a podcast takes a lot of work, okay? You have to organize the guests, you have to do a Google Calendar, and then you build a following. It takes a lot of time, and I've been working on it for a while. That's a clip from the new horror satire Bodies, 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 a film that takes deadly aim at many of the defining features of contemporary life, like the rapidly evolving language of progressive politics and, yeah, podcasts. Adam has the week off, so joining me to talk Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is fellow Chicago critic Mariah Gates. We'll also get a visit from the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips, who will talk Barbara Stanwyck with me. Our summer of Stanwyck Marathon continues with Frank Capra's Meet John Doe. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. It's a niche audience, I realize, but for those that care, I promise you I'm going to do my best to get Michael Phillips' Walter Brennan impression out of him at some point in this show. Brennan, a three-time Oscar winner, has a supporting role in 1941's Meet John Doe, directed by Frank Capra and starring Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. It's the fourth film in our Summer of Stanwyck Marathon. Michael joins me for that conversation later in the show. But first, I want to welcome in Mariah Gates. Mariah came to the rescue for us. As we mentioned last week, critic Roxana Haddadi had planned to join us, but she wasn't feeling well, couldn't record last minute, in swooped Mariah, a film critic based here in Chicago. She writes the weekly Directed by Women newsletter, available at the finest inboxes near you. Welcome, Mariah. Have you been having a good movie summer? So far, I've had a great movie summer. I, um, along with fellow Chicago film critic Robert Daniels, went to the Carlo Vivari Film Festival in the Czech Republic, a place neither of us had been to, and we saw... I want to say 25 or 30 films. (laughs) It was a lot. It was great. Um, It's a lovely festival. We saw things that are, you know, unique to that festival. Some some Eastern European titles, some films that were holdovers from Cannes. I saw an amazing film from Rwanda uh, called Father's Day that is probably going to make my end of the year list um, because I keep thinking about it. I hope it gets distribution um, because it's so good, but I'm glad I saw it. So, you know, it's kind of hard to hard to top a summer like that, starting off like I that. I imagine. Yeah, my goodness. Well, it sounds like an incredible experience. And and any other distinctions besides some of those films you wouldn't have seen in a, you know, US-based fest or maybe even somewhere else in Europe? Anything else stand out to you compared to other film festivals you've been to? It was a very critic-friendly festival. They um really took care of us. They really made sure um the the ticket system was really easy, but also um, there was one film that I was trying to review and I kept like, I kept missing 
you know, I missed the first screening and I missed the second screening because I was trying to see other stuff. And there was like one screening left and I, I emailed them and I was like, I don't know what to do. And they were like, we will get you a seat. And the the woman who was working with me, like my um, coordinator, she was literally there in front of the theater with me to make sure I had a seat for the last screening of this film. Nice. Just like she like saw my butt in the seat before she left. <laughs> and it ended up being one of my favorite films of the festival. It's called Plan 75. It's Japanese sort of not quite a pop it's like soft sci-fi um kind of movie but uh it's just they really were the most critic friendly i feel like i've ever seen in a festival nice well i'm glad that worked out for for the both of you now closer to home since you are a chicagoan i notice on twitter and so forth that You've been spending a lot of time at the Music Box Theater, (laughs) where we frequent as well. Is there a highlight from something you've seen there over the summer, either a new release or maybe one of the many retrospective showings that they do? Taking Robert to see Starman in 70mm, a film that I have loved since I was a kid and he had not seen somehow. It was a a film that escaped him all these years, was my highlight. I have loved that film. I love Jeff Bridges in it. I love Karen Allen. I always wanted to be Karen Allen when I was a kid. She's like, <laughs> understandable. I, I saw all her movies when I was a kid and I was like, why am I not her? Um, but the movie was more beautiful than I remembered because the 70 millimeter print was so gorgeous and the score is just so stunning. And it's sometimes considered a lesser carpenter. And I'm like, no, it is, it is as good as anything else he's done. It's, it's just sentimental in a way that maybe some mm-hmm. of his others aren't, but sentimental doesn't necessarily mean bad. And that was, yeah, as you mentioned, one of the showings of the Music Box's 70 millimeter festival, which is always, a, it was good to see that back this year. It's always a highlight on their calendar. All right. I promise we're going to get to Bodies, 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 but I needed to take a moment here. One last question for you before we do that. We're doing this Summer of Stanwyck Marathon. I know your love for classic and older Hollywood films. It's one of the reasons you tend to clean up when you join us to play trivia (laughs) spotting along with the film spotting family members on Patreon. When we do that, you have a wealth of knowledge, a deep passion. So talk to me briefly about Barbara Stanwyck, just where you kind of place her in the pantheon. I I was looking up how many I'd seen based on my letterbox. And according to letterbox, I've seen 46 Stanwyck movies. Wow. Um, yes. So she's probably very high in terms of completed filmographies. Um, the number one is Joan Crawford. No one will ever come close. I've seen all but like five Joan Crawford movies. But Stanwyck, I think, is unique in that she isn't. She's like Joan Crawford in that she is an original. You, you you don't see anyone who is similar in terms of screen presence before or after Stanwyck, and. She, again, like Joan Crawford, is able to move in between genres. She, you know, she did the shop-worn kind of 30s Depression-era films. She did Weepies. She did screwball comedy better than almost anybody, except maybe Carol Lombard. She did Noir, and she's like the peak femme fatale. Like, everyone wants to be Phyllis Dietrichson. There's no... She is the peak femme fatale. Um, And then she moved easily into westerns like you believe her as like a woman who can rope a cow um Mm -hmm. she just moves in and out of these these different kinds of films so easily yeah yeah that range has been on full display in this marathon and it's been a delight for me to catch a lot of these films for the first time joan crawford has been in the back of my mind too because she's one of those pinnacles i agree with you and just watching some of them film their films kind of pair off each other Mm -hmm. at the same time and similar stories but totally different talents that you yeah. bring 
such different things to the screen. That's what I think is so is so great about the classic era is you had plots that were similar, right? Each era mm-hmm. you had the you had the Depression era films, you had the screwball films, you had the noir films, what have you. But you had these distinct iconic personas. And yeah. so you weren't going to go see um, you know, a shop girl movie. You were going to see Joan Crawford or you were going yeah. to see Barbara Stanwyck. But they were all shop girl. Or you see Betty Davis. She had her her shop girl movies too. And um, even Jean Harlow, the like platinum blonde of all platinum blondes, had a few like shop girl movies where you're like, I don't buy her as a shop girl for an instant. But um, I like that they they took the care to make everyone feel distinct. And you don't really see that in contemporary cinema as much, which is a, a real bummer. Well, thank you for indulging that diversion, but let's get to bodies, bodies, bodies. Oh, so good. Who wants to play bodies, bodies, bodies? So how do you play? If you draw the piece of paper that has the X on it, you are the murderer. Let's go. And if you're the murderer, you have to kill someone by touching them on the back. The most important part, if you come across a body, you have to yell, Body, body, body! Is that the lights? David? Each of the 20-something friends in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies desperately needs a new social group. For now, though, they're stuck together in a mansion belonging to one of their parents while a hurricane rages outside. They pass the time by doing drugs, playing a guess-the-murderer role-playing game, and making passive-aggressive jabs that increase in aggressiveness. Oh, and someone dies. But who did it? And who keeps doing it? We're fairly certain it's not B, played by Maria Bakalova of Borat subsequent movie film, an outsider brought to this gathering of childhood friends turned snipers by her new girlfriend, Sophie, played by Amanda Stenberg of The Hate You Give and Dear Evan Hansen. But it could be Sophie. Or it could be any one of the other self-obsessed, reflexively insincere, easily triggered attendees, played by a promising young ensemble cast that also includes Pete Davidson, Rachel Sennett of Shiva Baby, and the more proven face of Lee Pace as a 40-something hanger-on who doesn't realize what a snake pit he's entered. Written by Sarah DeLapp and directed by Helena Ryan, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies doesn't hold back on dissecting the foibles of these characters, an approach that has amused some audiences and exasperated others. How about you, Mariah? How soon would you have wanted out of this party if you'd been invited? And at any point did you want out of the film? Um, I would absolutely have been like B and been completely out of my element in terms of the socioeconomic (laughs) background. And I probably also would have bought zucchini bread. Um, as my, as my, it's a great that, touch. That moment, I was like, whoever, whoever wrote that has been the working class person at a group of rich people because it's, it's such a sweet, is she's such a sweet character. The home, um, the home baked, homemade gift, housewarming gift. Yeah. You no, know, I've definitely done that. Um, <laughs> I like to bring cookies. I'm usually a cookie bringer. So, yeah, can't go wrong with cookies. You know, I was at the world premiere of this at South by and, one, it absolutely killed in that audience. Like, it, it's a perfect, rowdy audience movie because it's so outlandish. Um, I really loved it. I think the o- ensemble was very strong. I think that um, the director cast really differentiated 
performers. So each mm-hmm. character could easily have blended into each other and they don't. Um, I think that the standouts really are, in terms of the women anyways, really are Maria Bakalova and Rachel Senat, mostly because th- I, th- I feel like they are the most unique of the performers. They've started to really create personas around themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, Rachel Senat in particular, I saw someone tweet the other day that she's this generation's Lucille Ball, and I was like, I'm here for that, if that's the case, because <laughs> she is so funny. And part of what's great about her as a performer is she's not just good at sharp barbs. She's also really great at nuanced physical comedy, yeah. you know, like an eyebrow raise or a, a, a look in her eye that isn't, isn't something... Um, you expect she always does something you don't expect and she's just a very i love to use this word beguiling screen presence but i i liked it because i like movies of show that show how vapid and awful rich people are um <laughs> that's and that's what my, this does for you know, sure <laughs> and i i know that there were some you know some discussion of like does this actually capture Gen Z. And I'm like, I don't know that it's trying to capture all of Gen Z. I think it's a specific kind of rich New York teen, right? Mm. Or I guess at this point, they're college. But it's the same group of people that like the original Gossip Girl was showing. Although they, I think the original Gossip Girl had a little more reverence for them than they probably should have had. Um, But the movie that it made me, it reminded me the most of is actually a Gen X movie called April Fool's Day. Have you seen that? No, no. It's it's quite good. Um, it's it's one of the like three Deborah Foreman movies from the era, and it's a bunch of rich kids gathered at one house for a weekend. It's supposed to be a weekend away. It ends up being uh, everyone dies. Kind of. I'm not gonna. I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's got a very similar premise in that it's a group of of friends, all college age, all rich all um, sort of infighting gathered together in a house by one friend and people start dying. And it's sort of that hybrid slasher slash college film that um, this one is as well. And and it also has that, that biting satire to it. And I wish I had gotten to interview this director because I really wanted to ask her if like this was a coincidence or yeah. an actual what it was referencing. Yeah. Um, because I saw a lot of people, you know, saying, oh, it's like Mean Girls meets blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I feel like it needs to you need to go a little further back um, to find what the actual kernel of this movie is. Yeah, I um, didn't get didn't get Mean Girls. No, vibes, I, gotta say I, that. I think the people comparing it to Mean Girls like re- need to rewatch Mean Girls. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also I think it's it's interesting to see um, more and more films about this generation because they really are the first generation Gen Z that grew up with social media and with computers as like a given mm-hmm. for the most part, especially in this socioeconomic background and the, with these rich kids, these rich kids for sure all had phones and computers and this, this online connection that some of us uh, who are older remember the life before it. And yeah. I don't, I don't know that this, Gen Z does. And I think it's interesting to sort of see the psychological toll of that through the slasher genre. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, and how they how they respond to the situation 
when that's their basis, that's their foundation? Yeah, it's 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 just like taking, you know, like say Gen X and throwing them in the woods, right? Um, that takes them out of their comfort zone. It takes them out of what they're used to. It puts them in a milieu that that um, adds adds an extra layer of psychological horror just based on where they are, right? Then mm-hmm. you throw the serial killer in. That's what I feel like this is the equivalent of throwing them in the woods in that they shut off the internet, which is is where, you know, it's like our brains live on the internet. But really, I, I to some extent, even though I'm a millennial, sometimes feel like I live a little too much on the internet. And I know that I, when my internet goes out, I I wouldn't want to be right near me because I definitely am on edge. And yeah. I think this highlights that, I don't want to say addiction, but almost addiction-like feel um, really well. I think everyone would make stupid decisions and would be catty if that, you know, like the dopamine release of like getting a heart on your Instagram post or whatever is gone. I think that's, so you're touching on all sorts of good stuff. The generational aspect I want to dig into absolutely because I think that's a big part of it. I agree in some ways um, it's not entirely about this generation or even this class of people, um, but those are elements at play for sure. But let me yeah. jump back to April Fool's Day, the movie you mentioned, the 1986 movie. And I'm looking at the cast here because I want to go back to where you started with the cast. Um, And Deborah Foreman, you mentioned also in here, Griffin O'Neill, Jay Mm -hmm. Baker, Clayton Rohner, uh, Lloyd Berry, Deborah Goodrich. I'm not sure. Tom Heaton. Who else to kind of highlight? Because Thomas F. Wilson. Okay. Biff, Biff Tannen himself. Oh, there he is. I recognize the face <laughs> as you're saying it. I scrolled down to his face. The overall point is not a lot of those blew up to be huge global stars, right? No. And so I'm looking back at this cast. I'm thinking about this cast and asking myself that question because I think you see the potential of that in some of these performances. I liked Bodies, Bodies, Bodies as well. For me, it was, I think, the performances that maybe drew me in the most, even though these are not likable characters at all. I knew I wasn't going to get that from this film, so it didn't bother me too much. But I think that these performances by Senate in particular, who you've already highlighted, and I want to talk a little bit more about why she's so good um, and why I could see her hitting another level beyond this movie going forward. And we won't be looking at bodies, bodies, bodies on IMDb in, you know, 25 years and saying, who was that again? Like, we'll know. Hopefully we'll know who Rachel Sennett is. Did you see Shiva Baby last year? Yes. And she obviously made that... The, her performance was so crucial to making that work because you're there, you're in her head the whole time, right? Yeah, I th- I truly think she of this like Gen Z, this younger Gen Z, you know, generation of actors. I think she's got the most like lasting power. I I, yep. I think you can see she she knows her strengths and she's playing to it early. Hopefully, she continues to grow. Um, but I I think I think she will. I think she's really savvy. That's a good word. Savvy is a great word. And and you can see that in these two roles back to back because Shiva Baby, obviously comedic, but has more opportunity to give us a richer, deeper character than what she does here as Alice. And she's not trying to overplay that as Alice. She knows Alice's purpose in this narrative and gets everything she can out of that character and out of that 
purpose. You already named the physical comedy, the facial expressions, just the timing. And here's maybe where the Lucille Ball comparison comes to mind for me. She always seems to add something to the conversation a half second later than she should have. Yeah. I love how the movie pauses and waits like... And then eventually that builds and builds. So we know she's going to jump in later in the film and we just can't wait to see what Alice is going to offer. Uh, Tied to the physical comedy, just the fact that she keeps adding these glow sticks as necklaces as the night goes on, a perfect encapsulation of of her character um, who is this, you know, somewhat dippy, really excitable, but apparently seems kind of benign figure compared to some of the others. You know, she's just there to have fun, to brighten the mood. And so she literally tries to do that with these necklaces. But then we do get some shading later on. And we heard that clip at the top of the show when her podcast is insulted. Then Alice's claws come out and you've kind of, she has been triggered at this point. And Senate gives us another element to the character, which I think is both funny and scary. Um, introduces her then as a potential suspect for real. And I think it just works beautifully for the movie. So it's an example of Senate knowing exactly what she needs to bring to this and bringing the best version of that. Now, if we had to each choose a secondary performer or actor who we might put in that category of launching from here, is there an easy answer for you? Yeah, I, I think Maria Bakalova, like the one-two punch of Bor- of what she was able to do physically in Borat and then what she's able to do vulnerably in this film shows that she also has a rich tool, like toolbox of different emotions she can reach as a performer. And and kind of a, a fearlessness. She, she's definitely someone who's willing to go into extremes, both in terms of the physical comedy, like we saw in Borat, and then this the emotions that she reaches in this one as as an outsider and as someone who's who's trying to really find some comfort in this literal hurricane i thought was outstanding she really grounds grounds the film beyond the sort of um ridiculousness that some of the other characters take it to. They're not as nihilistic as they look on the internet. You guys, this is me. Oh, whoa. Is this your first relationship? Oh no. You just kind of give that vibe. Oh, you know that has weed in it, right? Yeah, I'd agree. I, I think she's incredibly strong. In some case, you know, in some ways, she's the audience surrogate, so it's easier to identify with her. She's the outsider in this group, but she also layers uh, many complications. I kind of joked at the top. We're pretty sure it's not her who's responsible for these deaths, but as the performance gets deeper, you start to wonder as you learn more about B, and that's because of the shadings that Bakalova brings to it. I think Amanda Stenberg shows a ton of promise here and there's a an intensity that they bring that gets a little scary at some point which again the movie needs to keep us on edge but uh, Stenberg has this intensity for the Bakalova character as well that comes across so I could I could see Amanda Stenberg jumping out as well how did Pete Davidson work for you because I joked earlier that I haven't seen a lot of Pete Davidson. I kind of knew of him, but haven't even seen much of him on SNL. So I was curious to see, is this, am I going to get it? Am I going to get all the fuss from this movie? And I thought he was, I thought he was fine. I thought you could tell he is more of a sketch slash standup comic in among this group, but still fit in well enough. I don't know how much potential for 
stardom beyond something like this I saw in the movie, but I thought he was okay. Yeah, he's definitely not a performer that I go out of my way to see. I actually don't really watch much SNL anymore. Um, I feel like after Bill Hader left, I was like, what? I don't have anything left here. But um, <laughs> other than Keenan, I've always been a fan of Keenan because I'm a millennial and he was, you know, on all that and Keenan and Cowell and everything. So there you go. I feel like I grew up with Keenan, but um, I. Did like, speaking of, you know, star personas, I did like that they sort of winked at his, not his, not his uh, performing persona, but his like public persona as Mm. um, like the go-to in need a really sensual weekend. Like you you Uh go on a couple of dates with um, Pete Davidson. It's his parents' house. It's his character's parents' house we're at, right? So... Yeah, it it's it's they they wink at him being you know supposedly like really good at sex. I guess is what I'm saying, and and I like that <laughs> I like that that's something that maybe 20 years from now, if he doesn't remain, like is sort of will like be like a fossil of <laughs> you know of why he was so you know on everyone's mind today, but not yes. won't necessarily be remembered 20 years from now. Bodies, bodies, bodies will be preserved in amber for, for future <laughs> generations to understand Pete Davidson. Pretty Got much, it. yeah. yeah I, I, I thought that was—I thought that was an interesting way of of using using his persona. He also, like, I don't want to spoil anything, but he also, just based on some of the sketches that I have seen on SNL, he also seems like the kind of dude that would get into the shenanigans he gets into in this movie. Yeah, um, for sure. But, yeah, even I was kind of aware that there's a type. There's a persona type that he's leaning into here, um, which makes sense for someone who's, you know, coming from a little bit of a performing, a different performing background. So can we jump back to the generational thing? Because I do think it's it's very interesting. Obviously, I'm not of the generation that this movie is about or aimed at. Similar to you, I can imagine a life before the Internet. I can remember a life before the Internet. I also panic when the Internet goes out. So I'm not entirely above how these characters behave or the choices they make. And I think the movie is clever here in not overplaying that, but also doing it visually. So the one thing I just couldn't get over, there's an early shot of this table. This party was basically planned for the hurricane. So they knew the hurricane was coming. They were just going to hole up together and ride it out. So there's a table in the entryway of this mansion full of water bottles, I think are on yeah. there, snacks. And what else, what else is on there? Just like 20 flashlights. And these people never grab a flashlight after the lights go out. Things start going insane. What do they do? They grasp onto their mobile phones, turn on the flashlight app, and that's what they're using the whole time. And that was just deeply evocative. It's instinctual. I'd probably do that at first as well. But for one thing, you know your battery's going to die. Your phone battery's going to die. I'm pretty sure half of these characters, their phone batteries were at 10% when they got to the party. So why don't they grab the flashlights? They're right there for them. And I just saw that as like a nice little jab, a little joke that, um, to your point, Mariah, these are people who are so ingrained in this online device world, they can't imagine one beyond it, even if there is a tool, an old-fashioned tool, that would be crucial to their survival. They just can't imagine looking for that. They're going to cling onto those camera phones until their final breath. 
Yeah, I I think that is a, a really great sort of visual joke because I was I think it was Barry Jenkins tweeted about when he was an assistant. He had a photo of this like map of LA that he had to use in like the early 2000s and it was it made me think about how like in all the assistants today are probably Jenna or Gen Z, right? So they're all using their phones to try to find things for yeah, yeah. their bosses, right? And I it made me wonder like if you gave a Rand McNally roadmap to a Gen Z, would they even know how to read it? I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to like throw a whole generation under the bus because phones are very helpful, but it's like do they does it do their parents teach them? My dad taught me how to read a Rand McNally map just in case. It's I mean, I I love maps. I love fold out maps, but my instinct is not to go for them at all, right? No, I go for to, I go for the phone first. So to use the phone. And I think but what the movie is kind of doing is like expanding that to if I was in a situation where a fold out map had more detail and would show me the way I needed to go, I think I would go to it. But for these particular characters, even though a flashlight has more battery, lights things up better, is easier to hold, they're they're not they're still it doesn't even cross phone. doesn't yeah. even cross their minds. So that's probably uh, probably enough on the flashlights. But I do think another generational thing that was interesting is some of the dialogue here, and this goes back to Senate. But I do think the other actors are very good at speaking this particular language, which maybe it's not generational. Maybe it's a class thing, as you hinted at. Um, maybe it's just an age of life thing, but. Their dialogue so often to me read like subtweets. So they're using phrases like not to be mean or after they've insulted someone, they'll say, but that's a good thing or something like I'm just saying it's all of these equivocations that have layers of insult to them, kind of kind of like um, cushioned among a niceness that you'd have to puncture through to really get to the insult. And I, that feels very online to me, that sort of communication. Me. You f- trigger me. You are so toxic. Relax, relax. You're silencing me. I definitely think whether whether it's supposed to be realistic or not, I think is aside, you know, beside the point. I do think that a lot of the dialogue is meant to mirror online because so much of this generation lives online, lives in memes, lives in TikToks, lives in. Instagram captions, lives in, you know, memoir-esque podcasts, right? And so it makes sense that they would talk to each other the same way as if they were tweeting at each other. Um, whether, whether you know, it's debatable whether uh, this generation actually talks to each other like that, because I don't sure. actually know very many Gen Z, so I would not be able to tell you. Um, but I do think that as someone who has been on the internet for now that I'm thinking about it, 23 years. Um, I do often, <laughs> I do often think about memes or think about things that I saw on the internet and reference yeah, it in real life. Like that is, that's kind of where my brain is or, or for the, when I was younger, um, this kind of dates me. Um, I was a big fan of live journal back in the day, like 20 years okay. ago. And every time I watch a movie, I, I would think about like how I would turn it into a live journal icon. And like, that's what my brain did just from being online for uh-huh. so much. And I, I, so I can see that like being, you know, this generation living mostly on like TikTok and in meme culture, I could see their brain having a thought and then coming out as a meme just because that's, that's how their brain processes. 
and it's really you know to to cover us here from from any blowback from Gen Z folks who are are feeling um, a little sort of a, we're painting with a broad brush. I think it's a technology thing. It's yes. it's more than an age thing. It's more than a um, particular generation. It's just how you've encountered technology in your life and how it becomes embedded in the way you communicate the way you instinctively think, and I guess in this case, in the way you would respond if uh, you were at a party and people started dying one by one. So is there anything else you wanted to touch on um, before we wrap up here? Um, I think you mentioned it briefly, but I I absolutely loved the cinematography, the way Mm. when the lights go out, it's mostly lit with these these, um, glow lights, glow sticks, and and the and the cell phone lights and I, I think the the low light cinematography is really gorgeous. Jasper Wolf, yeah, I'm yeah. glad you mentioned that because that stood out to me as well. The use of those, you know, sometimes it's just a simple idea used well. Um, is the use of those uh, glow stick necklaces is so effective, and they carry it over too. There's a scene with Lee Pace wearing some sort of meditation mask in a dark gym of the mansion. And yeah. that has a glow as well that gives it a, a bit of a um, psychedelic but also creepy vibe. And even there are underlights along the back of the walls of that gym that are glowing. And so it's this visual motif that's carried through that I agree uh, is very effective. Yeah, that was I – feel, I feel like just the whole way they built this world um, to feel – sort of artificial mm. the artificial light, the artificial talking, the artificial relationships. Um, yeah. And then the one sort of non-artificial thing is, is be with her, her zucchini cake. Um, <laughs> I just think that, I just think that is, was really well, well thought out and well done. I brought something. What is it? It's zucchini bread. Yum. It all comes back to the zucchini cake. Every time I think about it, I just want zucchini cake. It was like my favorite as a kid. So, <laughs> Well, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is currently playing in wide release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our pretty positive takes, let us know. Email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. Thank you so much, Mariah, especially for filling in last minute. Where can listeners find you online if they want to subscribe to your newsletter or keep up with all the other stuff you're up to? Um, I'm pretty much old films flicker everywhere. Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, um, still on Tumblr. If anyone is like part of the Tumblr renaissance, wow. I have never what, left. What generation Tumblr. is that? What is that? A- um, I guess Tumblr is mostly millennial. I okay. feel like it was millennial, but um, <laughs> I've been on Tumblr since 2008 and uh, I've had a Tumblr tab open for, I guess, 14 years. I don't know. <laughs> um, but if you, if you, if you've come back to Tumblr, uh, oldfilmslicker.tumblr.com, I've been on there forever. But um, my newsletter is on Substack, which I don't know what generation Substack counts as, but um, you could subscribe. It's also Old Film Slicker. And um, like you said at the beginning, I every Friday I send out a um, Directed by Women newsletter that highlights a handful of new releases, whether it's in theaters, VOD. And then also um, I comb through, I try to comb through most of the streaming services. So not just uh, Netflix and Prime, but Hulu, Tubi, Canopy, um, Hoopla, Canopy and Hoopla are both through libraries. If you have a library card, Mubi, um, sometimes Ovid, like 
places you've never heard of, but they stream movies, I will highlight it. Um, and I try to have a nice mixture of, you know, films that are newish and films that, you know, are from the eighties that maybe you've never heard of and sometimes silent films and just, just a nice mixture. And that comes out every Friday. It's usually about six, six or seven wrecks every week. Um, and sometimes I'll, I, I've been trying to send out other newsletters, like here's what's playing repertory in Chicago and things like that. But that ha- that happens less frequently than I had intended. Yeah, listeners, if you're not following Mariah yet, you absolutely need to get on that. It is all all good stuff. Thank you again for doing this, Mariah, especially at last minute. It was really fun. And thank you for having me. I really, I really love this film, and it was great to talk with you about it. Thanks. Take care. I like Mariah too much to make her play Massacre Theater. Michael Phillips? He'll join me for some suspect acting in just a bit and to discuss the next film in our Barbara Stanwyck Marathon, Meet John Doe. Stay with us. Dressing room. I'm Norma Jean. I'm still hurt when the camera is rolling. Marilyn Monroe only exists on the screen. That's from the trailer for Blonde, the highly anticipated Marilyn Monroe story from director Andrew Dominic. It's one of the titles we're looking forward to seeing and discussing this fall. Next week on the show, I think Adam and I will have our fall movie preview. We're still figuring that out, trying to settle for sure on the plan. But you can always get in touch with us and let us know your most anticipated movies of the fall. We're on Twitter. You can find Adam at FilmSpotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. You can also write the show at feedback at FilmSpotting.net or give us a call and leave a message. 312-264-0744. Okay, so during the break, we said goodbye to Mariah Gates. And now we welcome in Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Hello there, Michael. Hey, Josh. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Have you considered much about the fall movie slate yet, or are you still stuck in a summer state of mind? Are you looking ahead to fall film fest? You might plan to see what's ahead for Michael Phillips. I got to say, I haven't been anywhere uh, festival wise in a, in three years or so, but I, I'm, uh, I, I'm fortunate enough to be going back to the Venice film festival uh, and hey. uh, serving on a little uh, uh, sort of a side panel called the Biennale College Cinema, which is like for emerging filmmakers. It's almost like a Sundance Lab project, but with a full film at the end of it, not just a, not just a screenplay. And, uh, and we'll be seeing a lot of things at Venice. So, no, I'm thrilled, man. I, I just have to say I'm just yeah. grateful and relieved. Grateful and relieved to be back, you know, hopefully anticipating a festival and some gelato, for God's sake. Wow, I bet. Yeah, those sound like fantastic fall plans. Now, Michael, we are recording this remotely, but we're going to be seeing each other this fall, very early fall, in person next month at the Screen Gems Benefit for Facets. Facets is an independent theater and education space here in Chicago. 
at this September 28 event, they're honoring Chaz Ebert for her contributions to the film community, including her support of facets. We are both, Michael, on the honorary committee for the event, but you, Mr. Big Shot, you're presenting Chaz with the award, huh? Yes, that's uh, it's my pleasure to do it. Seriously, it's uh, Chaz has been just so great for it. Just, it just if she did if she did nothing except uh, get RogerEbert.com up and running and and maintaining it with the, such a good staff and such a such a devotion to a plurality of voices and just really, uh, you know, kind of a completist approach to covering as much as possible without just settling for, uh, you know, kind of slapdash reviews, but honest to God criticism. I, I'm really, really grateful for it just as a reader here in Chicago. And, and it's, it's, it's a real mainstay here, uh, I think nationally for film criticism. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. And no, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give her my best three minutes and then off, you know, that's, that's my approach to giving anybody anyway, <laughs> but no, I, I'm looking forward Sounds to smart. it. Josh. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be fun. We will link to more information about that September 28 event for facets and, and how you can get tickets if you're interested in the show notes. So Michael, you're here to talk Barbara Stanwyck with me, specifically 1941's Meet John Doe with Stanwyck and Gary Cooper. But first we are going to play some massacre theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. Hey, so uh, what do you got coming up after this? Nick, I got two movies right after yours. One, I play a rapist that uh, Michelle Pfeiffer falls in love with. The other one, I play a kind of a sexy uh, serial killer that shacks up with one on a rider. That's great. Yeah. I'm not into that Hostess Twinkie Hostess Twinkie? Hollywood man. You know, it's all fluff. These are the kind of films I want to be doing. Hey, thanks, man. Hey. I gotta say, I'm, I'm really glad you feel that way, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be working with you. Yeah, me too. You're a great director, man. Your films are totally whack. That was James LaGrosse and Steve Buscemi in 1995's Living in Oblivion, written and directed by Tom DiCillo. A couple of weeks back, Adam and I shared our top five Brad Pitt performances, along with Adam's thoughts on Pitt in the new Bullet Train. So why that scene from Living in Oblivion? We heard from listener Lisa Nelson in Ayer, Massachusetts. I instantly knew what this week's Massacre Theater was, and I was immensely impressed at the boldness of this selection. Starring Steve Buscemi as Nick, the film is about a director trying to make a low-budget indie starring the radiant Catherine Keener as Nicole and a very intense James LaGrosse as Chaz Palomino. Tom DiCillo's prior film was Johnny Swade starring Brad Pitt, and rumor has it that the LaGrosse character is closely based on Pitt as a popular Hollywood actor who is taking a break from hostess Twinkie to be in Nick's auteur film. For the record, DiCillo claims in the film commentary that this is not true. Tom Morris from the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy Movie Podcast says, Fun fact, Pitt was going to play the James LaGrosse role until the shooting of Legends of the Fall conflicted. Other connections, Oblivion stars Buscemi, who, like Pitt, has been in several Coen Brothers and Tarantino movies. Catherine Keener is in the film and co-starred in Being John Malkovich. Malkovich and Pitt acted together in Burn After Reading. Sandra Bullock, who appears in this year's The Lost City and Bullet Train with Pitt, stars in Ocean's 8, along with Kate Blanchett and Helena Bonham Carter, 
who were in Benjamin Button and Fight Club with Pitt. That's like it's like one degree of Pitt. Yes, exactly. Tom playing the degrees of separation game there. We also heard from Josh Call from Brooklyn. I knew it immediately and started massacring it along with you guys. Anybody who works on the production side of the film industry can attest to the fact that Tom DeCillo's 1995 comedy, Living in Oblivion, is essentially a documentary or a horror film, depending on which department you work in. DeCillo honed in on the true terror of being on set and watching your project slip through your fingers like sand while still managing to keep it fun, light, and compelling. Thanks in no small part to the absolutely killer performances by Steve Buscemi, Catherine Keener, and Dermot Mulroney as Wolf, the king of fussy cinematographers. It's an underseen classic that everyone should catch up on. As is tradition in my house, the night before I start a production, I watch Living in Oblivion to remind myself that no matter how chaotic it may get on set, I can sleep sound knowing that I will never have to convince my lead actor into taking off an eye patch. P.S. This would make an excellent double feature pairing with Steve Buscemi's other comedic meditation on independent filmmaking, 1992's In the Soup, R.I.P. Seymour Cassell. All right. Thank you, Josh Michael. You have the honors as the guest to go ahead and reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. Ooh, great. Sound effects. Okay. The winner is Brooke Thompson from Portland, Oregon. Wow. You're a pro bringing in the sound effects. I love it. Congratulations, the Foley, Brooke. The Foley man. Email. I'm the Foley man. <laughs> yes, exactly. Brooke, go ahead and email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. I think your dialogue is beautiful. I really do. I love it. Then why the hell don't you just stand still and say it instead of wandering all over the stage? You're supposed to be looking for your soul, not an ashtray. We move on now to this week's Massacre Theater. This might come across in our performances, Michael. Depends on how we play it. But listeners should definitely be thinking classic Hollywood. Also, for those of you who responded on Twitter and Facebook when I requested suggestions for parts that Michael could play, we did go with one of those, so this might look familiar to that handful of you who responded. Perhaps, Michael, that listener who suggested this knew something about you that you just shared with me before recording. This part is familiar to you. You played this in a stage production way back in 86 in Minnesota? 86, and not just Minnesota, Josh, the, the Paul Bunyan Playhouse in Bemidji, Minnesota. And I only really got the part because <laughs> wow. my, my, my ex-girlfriend ran the theater. And I mean, that's a right broad, <laughs> as they used to say, you know? <laughs> nepotism. Even with nepotism, you couldn't launch your, um, your acting career? What happened? No, no, no. I just, you know, it's funny. I just, it's great. It's great. It's, it's a wild thing to actually feel that what little tiny talent you have is actually gets tiny, a tiny bit smaller with every single word you utter on stage. And that was, that was, that was my ace in the hole. Okay. Got it. Well, at least you're honest with yourself. I'm hoping that however you play this, I don't know if you're going to go back to 86, get yourself in that headspace, if you're going to give us Walter Brennan, or you're going to go in a completely different direction. <laughs> I'm very eager to see. Now, I do begin this scene. I'm playing the usual Adam part. I'm playing the woman in this scene, and I start it. Can you give me the action, and we'll get going. Okay. You better hang on. <clears throat> okay. Ready? Action. Do you or do you not love me? Oh, Elaine, Elaine, how could you say such a thing? Darling, of course I love you. Do ya? Yes, darling. 
Hey, then why have you been treating me the way you have? Elaine, Elaine, darling, I love you so much. I can't go through with our marriage. Have you suddenly gone crazy? No, I just suddenly went to a different character voice, that's all. No, 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 I don't think so, Elaine, but it's only a matter of time. Look, look, darling, you wouldn't want to have children with three heads, would you? I mean, you wouldn't want to set up housekeeping in a padded cell. Oh, that'd be bad. What are you talking about? Oh, I don't know. Elaine, look, I probably should have told you this before, but you see, well, insanity runs in my family. It practically gallops. And scene. Well, yes. thank you, Michael, for the meta commentary on your own performance, mid-performance. Right, that's that's, that's a new level. And yeah, you threw me off there. Okay, it's appropriate to let the critic in just for a second with this particular <laughs> role. Dun, 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 yeah, yeah, I understand this is a movie you're not a fan of as well, right? Right, right. One more clue we can give folks there? Okay. Okay. We'll leave it at that. That's plenty of clues. Hopefully listeners will be able to track this down because I don't think either of our performances are going to help. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, August 29. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Did you write that letter to Miss Mitchell? No, I didn't. What are you doing up here then? Well, the paper says there were some jobs around loose. Thought there might be one left over. Had any schooling? Yeah, a little. What do you do when you work? I used to pitch. Baseball? Yeah, until the wing went bad. Where'd you play? Bush leagues, mostly. How about family? Got any family? No. Oh, just traveling through, huh? Yeah, me and a friend of mine. He's outside. Gary Cooper there with Barbara Stanwyck and James Gleason in 1941's Meet John Doe, directed by Frank Capra. It's the fourth film in our summer of Stanwyck Marathon. It's also the second of three films in the marathon that were released in 1941. We've already talked about Preston Sturgis's The Lady Eve. We will get to Howard Hawke's Ball of Fire, also with Cooper, next week. Those two films, Michael, have reputations as screwball classics. I can personally vouch for Eve. That one left me cockeyed, as I said a couple weeks ago. Loved it. Meet John Doe. A bit of a weird one for both Stanwyck and Capra. Before we get into that, give me your take on Stanwyck in general, Michael. What you make of her as an actress? Oh, my God. Oh, geez. I, I, I was late to appreciate just how damn good she is in so many in so many directions. But uh, uh, I, I think it's great that you're you, you're setting things up with people starting with Babyface, just because it, it is one of the skeeziest pre-code movies ever. And Stanwyck <laughs> is so terrific in it; she just cuts right through anything that's everything that's kind of nuts and abrasive and out of date with it, with this really amazing performance. And what she had this this tough kid orphan from Brooklyn bounced around. She was a Corrine at age 16 for Ziegfeld Follies. You know, I don't know how much you've dealt with that, but it's, you know, I mean, she's just a really kind of not an unusual sort of a hard knock life as this, as this, you know, actress just sort of, just sort of works her way up and through into, into sound pictures. And it took a while for her to really kind of register, just like it took a while for everybody, Gable, Cary Grant, everybody of the of the time to kind of find themselves. But Stanwyck had this unbelievable, easy, naturalistic sense, no big blood and thunder melodramatics, um, 
you know, stage trained, but uh, but not stagey in any sense. She just feels utterly modern to me. And and there's mm. somebody described her appeal in two words that I, I I think are on the money: rough poignancy. Like that's what she's got. She's got a completely mm. authentic toughness, a, a very rough edge. Uh, uh, but just just somebody who can just look a character in the eye and know exactly how to play every minute, every line. You know, I, I, I just, I, and I and was, I was late to her because I first saw her from what the, uh, the Big Valley on TV or Dynasty or stuff that didn't really matter as much. Um, but you know, more recently, I've seen things, all kinds of stuff from like Forty Guns to all the, all the great films that, uh, good and great films that you, you folks are, are dealing with this in this marathon. But no, I'm, I, I'm nothing but high on Stanwyck, and it's it's a very different appeal than Betty Davis or Joan Crawford. It's it's in some mm-hmm. ways it's much less overtly uh, intense and stylized and 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 floridly dramatic. Uh, I mean, the, all three of them are beautiful stars, you know, major stars, major actors in, in their way. But Stanwyck has just something else that. Uh, I can't even I can't even really put the words on it, but I love those two words, rough poignancy, because she brought it to everything. Yeah, I think you know, just of the films we've been looking at in this marathon, I think that maybe describes what she's doing in Stella Dallas the best. But we can get into it. Maybe we see some of that here in Meet John Doe as well. Here's a bit of the plot for Meet John Doe. Stanwick is a newspaper columnist at a paper whose new ownership is firing writers left and right in an effort to cut costs. I don't know how you handled those scenes, Michael. I had a bit of PTSD back to those days when I was at a paper and it was like the annual, I think it was every June, you know, 10 to 20 people got hacked. So these scenes were a little rough to me. I don't know if you made it past those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot to uh, speak to the present day in this picture. Let's just say. There you go. Exactly. Well, Stanwix Ann Mitchell. Yeah. She's among those threatening to be downsized, but she turns in this last column in which she includes a letter from a fictional John Doe, someone she's completely made up. In the letter, John Doe threatens to commit suicide on Christmas Eve, no less, to protest what he perceives as society's ills. It is worth noting that when the film was made, country was beginning to emerge from the Great Depression that had lasted most of the previous decade. Now, the column becomes a sensation. This leads Stanwick and the paper's editor, James Gleason's Henry Connell, to find an actual John Doe to play this part. And that is where Cooper's homeless, jobless former ball player, John Willoughby, comes in. And he's not alone. He's got Walter Brennan's The Colonel with him as his walking, talking conscience. Is this a good place for your Brennan impression, Michael, or you want to just surprise us with it later? I'm going to surprise it with you later. <laughs> Great. Okay. And I'm, I, I'm I'm a little sick of being trotted out like a show pony, you know, with <laughs> with a with a mediocre Brennan impression. It's just it makes me mad. Oh, sorry. There you go. Love it. Love it. There you go. As Cooper's John Doe becomes increasingly popular, going on to spawn an entire populist movement, he gets exploited by just about everybody, including most frighteningly a wealthy tycoon who has aims at the White House, played with Quiet Menace by Edward Arnold. Over the course of the film, Cooper also goes on a journey of personal enlightenment. And inevitably, we can maybe talk about this, not very persuasively for me, a romantic engagement with Stanwyck. Now, I said that Meet John Doe was kind of a weird one for both Stanwyck and Capra. Partially, that's because Stanwyck plays more of a supporting role than lead here. Cooper 
is the definite star. Capra also was coming off a string of hits. It happened one night. Mr. Deeds goes to town. You can't take it with you. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, all of which he was Oscar nominated for and which he won two best directing Oscars for in that stretch. But unlike those films, John Doe, not as acclaimed in movie history, not as solid of a place in movie history, although maybe you're going to make the case that it should be. Michael, what did you make of Meet John Doe? Man, it is it is a really harsh movie, and and that's that's the big difference. In that, if you look at if you look at Deeds, Mister Deed Goes to Town, written by the same writer here, Robert Riskin, who you know is a wonderful screenwriter, worked with Capra a lot. Followed by Mister Smith Goes to Washington, James Stewart, Gene Arthur, uh, and then then this other Riskin project, Meet John Doe, with Gary Cooper and uh, and Barbara Stanwyck. These are often lumped together and labeled uh, as Capra's populist trilogies, taking on kind of major institutions and, and pitting kind of idealistic, naive, uh, you know, on the surface, simple characters up against the forces of institutional darkness, really. And, in, in you know, in the first case, it's just the kind of the, the, all the people who are trying to uh, manage this $20 million estate that this yokel from Mandrake Falls, Vermont, falls into, and he's exploited by every banking concern, you know, they can get together to get money out of them. In the second one, of course, Mr. Smith, he's James Stewart in the famous filibuster scene at the U.S. Capitol goes up against, you know, the, the entire U.S. political machine, uh, most of which is corrupt in in, in this in this story's uh, depiction. And so you're getting a darker, a kind of progressively darker and heavier uh, allegory uh, uh, at 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 play, and then meet John Doe. It goes all the way to Jesus Christ. I'd say. Uh, hmm. I mean, there's an awful lot of references to Pontius Pilate, and you know, and, and a, a guy who uh, who in the end, and as filmed originally and written originally, at the end of Meet John Doe, John Doe kills himself. The original title of the script was The Life and Death of John Doe, uh, and and that didn't really play with audiences in the test screening stage. Capra filmed no fewer than four endings for this thing. Two really unhappy. One, I mean, in the original ending, there's Walter Brennan, his pal, the colonel, picking up the corpse of John Doe and just Yikes. walking off into the credits at the end. I mean, that's entertainment. And, uh, and, and they had a completely unconvincing, happier ending where the Edward Arnold character, D.B. Norton, who is honest to God a proto-fascist? I mean, he's he's like he's like he's basically in you know working. He's practically a Nazi in this picture. No joke. I mean, he's because there's lines about him being kind of a fifth column, you know, subversive, working against America's interests from within. He's he's a para, He's got his own paramilitary, you know, you know, police unit. Surround. He's just an oil tycoon, but he's 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 clearly a fascist on the rise. And they gave him a happy ending. Like, oh, okay, you're right. I, I am. I, I am moved by John Doe's plight. Uh, forgive me. I, I. I was all wrong. Merry Christmas, everybody. And nobody <laughs> believed that ending either. Okay. And so what they came up with was a compromise, which is probably the best of the of a bad lot. And Frank Capper himself, Josh, in his book, uh, the the name above the title, talks about how this film doesn't deserve the status of classic because they never figured out the ending, even in the writing. They just did not. They said the ending that we have was the best of a sorry lot. And the last little bit of trivia I'll give you is this. They had the movie playing in six different 
<laughs> cities after it opened, playing for two weeks, and somebody wrote Camper a letter saying, hey, your ending's stupid. The only ending that would make sense is if you had some of the John Doe's, you know, kind of get together and convince him that he shouldn't kill himself at the end. So he went back into the studio and filmed that ending. So that was huh. the fifth and final ending that they actually, that we now know. And the other ones apparently don't survive, which is too bad. But it's, you know, it's, 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 this is, this was Capra's self-admitted. And this is the quote. He says, I was, this picture was aimed at winning critical praises. You know, tell, I'm going to get something to take the, you know, I don't like that, that, that nickname Capricorn. That was the, that was what everybody who didn't like Frank Capra pictures called his movies, you know, corny, sentimental, American idealistic, you know, interesting mix of politics though, because Capra, a right wing, more conservative guy as a director and in, in life and his screenwriter, Robert Riskin, uh, a much more of a left-wing guy. And, and that's why these films, Deeds, Smith, and Meet John Doe, are sort of fascinatingly conflicted movies. And they, and they have a lot of real kind of tension in them. And Meet John Doe, I think, is interesting in that it, it just goes as dark as it goes. You know, where it's 1941, we're on the brink of World War. Capra did have, you know, an idea like we have to we we uh, let's go for, let's let's go all the way with this, which is hilarious. I think now, Josh, because the opening music credits play "Roll Out the Barrel." We'll have a barrel of fun under the opening credits, and you're telling me that you're going to do that up against the suicide ending. I mean, that film would have been the craziest movie, you know, in Hollywood history if they if the original ending as written had been released. But it's all over the place, right? I mean, don't you feel like yeah. it's just like a completely unstable experience, but a fascinating one? I think your description of it as compromised rings true to my viewing experience. And I was unaware of all that trivia with the multiple endings and so forth, but it felt like a movie that had not found where it wanted to land completely. And for me, partially, it is going back to that romantic connection between Stanwyck and Cooper that... I just don't think right. the movie gives the space for it to really materialize. And so when it's asked to then essentially save Willoughby's life and save the movie, it just doesn't have what it takes to do that. And so I feel the right. compromise there for sure. I also feel the compromise, you know, in the context of this Stanwick marathon, because as I said at the top, she's very much a supporting um, player in this narrative. And that's fine. You can't hold that against the film. This film was not made to be part of a Barbara Stanwyck marathon, but just <laughs> me coming into it, expecting being just so wowed by her in so many different ways. Yes, it's it feels a little bit of a compromise to hand it over to Cooper. That said, can I just tell you how much I love Cooper in this movie hmm. and you know i'm familiar with him of course from from some of his westerns and other pictures but here i was just completely charmed charmed by the physical comedy he has at the beginning the whole bit about getting put up in that posh hotel room and how he's feeling the the softness of the bed gives a double yeah, take to yeah. this nude sculpture that's right placed right by his face those are great moments uh the interplay with Brennan their dynamic together is also comedic in a different way and then the way he does as James Stewart does manages to bring an authenticity to what would, to my mind, be corny if a lesser actor was mm -hmm, delivering mm -hmm. some of these speeches and some of these lines. To most of you, your neighbor is a stranger, a guy with a barking dog and a high fence around him. Now, you can't be a stranger to any guy that's on your own team. So tear down the fence that separates you. Tear down the fence 
and you'll tear down a lot of hates and prejudices. Tear down all the fences in the country and you'll really have teamwork. Cooper is able to hit all of those notes in this film from beginning to end and really, really does carry it. And I don't think, you know, it's necessarily his fault if they didn't find that character and him as an actor, the proper ending. The other thing you said was harshness and that does ring true to me. It's not something that I felt while watching it, but I do wonder if it's connected to another observation I had, which I'm curious what you make of, Michael. You know, Capra's movies... So many of them have, at the very least, one key speech that a character gives Hmm. or monologue. And a couple of movies, a couple of his movies have more than one. Man, Meet John Doe is stuffed with them. Just (laughs) stuffed with them. And I think the content of most of them is compelling and adds to that political tension that you're talking about. I think this is a very hard film to read politically one way. You can do that and you can twist it to either attack your own beliefs or support your own political beliefs if you wanted to. But I think it's pretty complicated. And looking at the the different speeches shows that. But at the same time, there are so many speeches in this thing. I mean, we get Brennan's Helot speech about the enslavement of consumerism. Obviously, Mm. we get multiple speeches from Cooper. The editor, James Gleason, has a great speech where he's drunkenly explaining what patriotism means to him. I love the content of that. Yeah, that's a great scene. Beautiful scene. It's so good. But you add all of these on top of each other, and you do feel like you're being talked at quite a bit in this movie. Maybe the one that really dragged on and on was uh, Regis Toomey as the soda jerk in this town they travel to. And he talks about how they've started these John Doe clubs and it's revitalized his community. That one just seemed to go on and on and on. Well, Mr. Doe, before we got through, I found out Smithers is a swell egg, only he's pretty deaf and that accounts for all the noises. And he says, it's a shame how little we know about our neighbors. And then he got an idea and he said, how's about inviting everybody someplace where we can all get together, know each other a little better. Well, I'm feeling so good by this time, I'm ripe for anything. So Smithers goes around the neighborhood inviting everybody to a meeting at the schoolhouse, and I tell everybody that comes in the store, including Mr. Schwabecker, my boss. I'm talking too much. So it wore me out a little bit because of its reliance on speeches, and even when the material was good, some of those speeches delivered a harshness that... Something like the harshness you're describing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good way to put it. I think I, I think some some of the speeches are wonderful. I think Riskin is a wonderful writer. Uh, I, I think it, it, the the great occasion to kind of review Meet John Doe for, for these purposes was also a reason for me to see for the first time. I seriously, in probably forty, maybe you know thirty five, forty years, Mister Deeds Goes to Town, which is just fantastic. It's almost it's almost a carbon copy just in terms of the themes we're addressing. It's what Meet John Doe borrows the most from. And in Deeds, I think it just all works kind of beautifully. And it's also, it's also not just, it's not just played for comedy, but Cooper's wonderful in it. And this is a different, Meet John Doe's a different thing. It's, I, I think Capra and Riskin and the nation felt a little, more profoundly uneasy, God knows, by 1940 when they were filming. And this whole question about do we have, do we actually have uh, Nazi sympathizers in this country to the degree that it's going to, you know, you know, people were wondering, well, you had half the, essentially half the country 
you know, historians will argue with the number. I, I don't know the percentage, but like, you know, one part of the country saying, stay out of the war, let's, you know, America first. And the other half, we're just sort of getting ready. We need to help our, we need to help out the rest of the world here with this rising Nazi menace and Mussolini in Italy and all of it. It's a really scared atmosphere. Mm. And the movie plays directly into that because by the end of that big, the climatic scene where you're seeing the, the big John Doe convention, which is meant to bring everybody together, and then in which John Doe, the Cooper character, is going to endorse for president a third-party candidate, D.B. Norton, uh, and he hasn't read the speech in advance because he likes to keep it spontaneous, and that's the idea. And the and his his uh, throng of, ad- of adoring fans turns into this ugly, vicious mob in the in the most kind of beautiful black and white uh, yeah. studio rain, rainstorm scene. Actually, it was not the studio. They filmed that scene in uh, what was called Wrigley Field in L.A. So it was an outdoor. They rigged up a big old rain machine for for this huh. baseball stadium in L.A. and. Yeah, you know, Capra writes in his autobiography, but I just love rain. He says, I love rain on screen. And, you know, that's a really powerful scene. But it's a, it's a movie that really makes you eat it. You know, it really lays that character low, lower than he's ever laid uh, any of his characters in any comparable film, you know, to the brink of suicide. And that's the whole premise of the picture. And the fact that they couldn't quite write their way out of that one and kept kept filming different endings to solve it is is a I don't know I, I kind of love that though about it Josh too because it's it sort of lets you know that you had this like you say these these sort of ideologically opposed collaborators screenwriter uh, Riskin and the director Capra trying to work out you know some way to kind of resolve their 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 ending their story and they couldn't do it but. You know that's the movies. It just doesn't. It doesn't go according to plan. And yet, we a lot of people really cherish Meet John Doe for a lot of the reasons you've mentioned. Cooper, just to, and and look back to Stanwyck, and then I'll yeah. shut up. Back to Stanwyck. Yes, supporting role. The fact that, but but if you rewatch just some of the expository scenes in the first half hour, forty minutes, where you get in the setup, where she's the you know the wronged newspaper columnist who's writing this column out of spite to get even, and and then it turns into this unexpected. You know, subscription. You know, some reader success and all that, and kind of makes her career. But the way she handles the the conflicted feelings about, uh, you know, putting one over on the guy that she's, you know, the script tells us they're falling in love. We don't really see it. <laughs> the script tells us that but they don't. We don't really see it necessarily because it's not a movie about their love story. It's about bigger ideas. Stanwyck is just a, a, a master at spitting out patter at that incredibly snappy. Let's take it back eight years pre-code pace, you know, just like spitting out the dialogue. Mm-hmm. She's got great technical facility, great sincerity, and a very easy touch. And and that it's the kind of thing you you can rehearse an early thirties or twenties play today with with really talented actors, and they can rehearse for four weeks and play that play four six weeks, and they really haven't captured the style that Stanwood could just do in her sleep. You know, amazing. Look, genius. Now look. Suppose there was a John Doe and he walked into this office. What would you do? Find him a job and forget about the whole business, I suppose, huh? Not me. I'd make a deal with him. A deal? Sure, when you get hold of a stunt that sells papers, you don't drop it like a hot potato. Well, this is good for at least a couple of months. You know what I'd do? Between now and, let's say, Christmas when he's going to jump, I'd run a daily on. Starting with his boyhood, his schooling, his first job. A wide-eyed youngster facing a chaotic world. The problem of the average man of all the John Doe's in the world. Now... Then comes the drama. And she's also really good, as you were hinting at, 
at the conflicted moments later after Anne has gotten pulled in too deep with Norton, who she is still the scriptwriter mm. for him as he's making his moves toward political power. And she's writing right. what John Doe, what Willoughby is going to say. You know, I think that's why the romance doesn't work is because we're less interested in that than in Anne's internal conflict over this thing that she has created has grown beyond her control. And is there still something she can do to hold it back? Where does she lie? You know, obviously Stanwyck is capable of exploring all of those avenues, too. And when she gets to in little moments... She's fantastic, but the movie is also trying to, you know, squeeze in this romance. And so that takes away from her opportunity to do some of those more interesting things. I'm glad you mentioned the convention, the John Doe convention with those crowd sequences, because that is just incredibly visually stunning. And for a long time, I was thinking, man, I wish I wish this movie was doing a few more interesting things with the camera or with the production design or anything to kind of liven it up visually. And then we get these incredible crowd scenes that do turn the weather is part of this very frightening when that crowd is yeah. manipulated so easily and turning on a dime and just frothing over just a froth, you know, and we've talked about the political implications of the time. Here's where I think meet John Doe was, you know, very pertinent to today. And Obviously, as I said, everyone's going to bring their own political readings and stripes to the movie. It was hard for me not to watch with alarm and think of a certain former president as this D.B. Norton figure. And um, I don't like to use his name. I just like to call, you know, going back to our Jaws review, I like to call him um, the raft thief in Jaws. But <laughs> Norton here struck me very much like that. Raft thief, although here, you know, what we've got today, it's almost a Norton who didn't need to find a Willoughby because, you know, this guy we're stuck with, he can play both parts. He can play, you know, the behind the scenes and be out in front whipping up these populous crowds into a froth. So I think, you know, for those tensions that Capra was playing with here way back when and maybe different ones that Riskin was playing with, for me, they certainly still resonate today. All right, Practical Annie, here it is. Tomorrow night, before a crowd of 15,000 people and talking over a nationwide radio hookup, John Doe will announce the formation of a third party. A third party? Yes, the John Doe party, devoted entirely to the interests of all the John Doe's all over the country which practically means 90% of the voters. He will also announce the third party's candidate for the presidency, a man whom he personally recommends, a great humanitarian, the best friend the John Doe's have. Mr. D.B. Norton. Yes. People have been trying to uh, turn this material, Meet John Doe, into a stage production, uh, a musical. There's even been an attempt to turn it into an opera. And you can almost start to see it and hear it in those forms, just kind of by thinking about how, where this story does go by that convention climax. Because that's a big scene. It's not just like a three, five-minute scene. It's like it's like mm -hmm. where the whole third act is going. And, yeah. you know, it, it's what happens afterwards that, that, that gets wobbly, but... You know, it's as Capra said in his bi autobiography, which you say, you know, with this movie, with Meet John Doe, the, 
the writer, Riskin and he, were trying to, quote, astonish the critics with contemporary realities. The ugly face of hate, the power of uninformed bigots in red, white, and blue shirts, the agony of disillusionment, and the wild, dark passions of mobs. And that is that is not, it happened one night, you know, that's not mm. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. That's not even Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which also gets very, you know, the extremes to which the story goes uh, to you know at the end of smith mr smith is you know they 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 go very far but this went further and it found a bit of an audience at the time but people were people were already getting a little um i don't know if it, it if, if it quite hit it did not hit the audience's sweet spot and the ending you know it was is about a, it was this ha- it was the happiest ending they could pull off without it completely undermining or reversing the entire picture we had just watched, <laughs> but it's—I uh, don't know—it's going to be a fascinating. It's—it's it's a fascinating inter, uh, internal debate of a movie about how to how to end itself, about what the what the political stance really is, and uh, I guess what 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 no there's no debate about is just the quality of the acting from everybody: Cooper, Stanwyck, you know, everybody from you know Edward Arnold, James Gleason. It's just you know, Capra had a it was sort of a genius on casting and. Um, Stanwyck, uh, you know, does not let down. It's just that, you know, she doesn't have the major role you'd love her to have in this picture. So something of a curiosity in our Stanwyck marathon, something of a curiosity in the career of Capra as well with Meet John Doe. Next week, the Summer of Stanwyck Marathon continues with Howard Hawks' Ball of Fire. Like Meet John Doe, it came out in 1941 and also pairs Stanwyck with Cooper. For the complete marathon lineup, visit filmspotting.net slash marathons. Michael, that is our show. Thank you so much for joining me. How can listeners keep up with all of your fraudulent columns over at the Chicago Tribune? Well, well slow down now, no, no. Very few, very few fraudulent columns anymore. Uh, but they, they could probably find them at chicagotribune.com slash movies. You can also find me on Twitter at Phillips Tribune. He, uh, you know, it's a very optimistic handle these days. But yeah, we're, we're going to keep it Phillips Tribune. And uh, yeah, that's that's it. And now and then I, 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 I'm I happy to appear on uh, a locally produced uh, podcast called Film Spotting. So thanks. Thanks for having me back on. <laughs> you bet. Always love having you on the show, Michael. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, you can find Adam at Film Spotting and I am at Larson on Film. In the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll, which looks back on the summer that was. We're asking, what was summer 2022's best film? Yep, it's Nope. Or Nope, it's Top Gun Maverick. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Opening in wide release this weekend, Idris Elba plays a man stalked by a bloodthirsty lion. I think that's all you need to know. Next week, Adam will be back and we'll probably have a fall movie preview. We will certainly continue our Summer of Stanwyck Marathon with 1941's Ball of Fire. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Betty Lavendero. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. 
Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.